Reed, who is from Kwamba Baptist, and he is going to be our uh, speaker this morning. So would you welcome Joe as he comes forward? Thank you, sir. <laughs> Good morning. It's great to be with you once again. The most important question in your mind is when do I finish? And so I will ask you, when do I need to be kind of buttoned up? Anybody? It's, I'm going to a picnic after this and it's raining, so what do I care when we get out? So if you don't speak up, you're in bad, bad shape. All right. Sounds good. We can do that. Uh, let me take care of a couple of housekeeping things for you. Uh, need some big, strong, strapping young men to stack chairs after the service. So if that describes you, I know it describes you Monday through Friday when you're boasting about your size and strength, so don't wimp out. Stack chairs after, after the service. Whoops. And uh, we wanted, you'll notice the parking lot has been freshly striped, and so we thank the guys that, that got that job done. I still smoked the curb, but that's my fault, not theirs. Um, I'm just a lousy driver. Take your Bible and open to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 this morning. <clears throat> what I want to do is uh, read verse 9 to 14, pray and ask the Lord's blessing, and then we'll jump in. <clears throat> Listen to what the Word of God says. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Heavenly Father, we need to hear from you this morning. We have come to sing praises to your name. We have come to encourage and be encouraged by the company of your people. And we come to this portion of the service where we are going to look at your word and we need to hear from you. If you do not feed us with your word, we will surely perish. So, Heavenly Father, in your mercy, send your Holy Spirit to minister the bread of life to our hearts. We pray this because we know this would please you, and we pray this because you have given us freedom to pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The news moves so incredibly fast anymore that uh, you may not, or you may have already forgotten the name James Hodgkinson. James Hodgkinson, a couple of weeks ago, grabbed an AR and went off to a softball field in Virginia and tried to gun down some of our congressmen and senators. One of our congressmen is still in the hospital. And then he was finally killed himself. And, and as you remember that story unfolding, what, what came out was that Mr. Hodgkinson was an avid supporter of not the president and not Hillary Clinton, but Bernie Sanders. And when that sort of got out, 
The first thing that Senator Sanders did was find a microphone and a cameraman and get in front of it and say something to the effect of, this is not what me and my campaign are all about. I don't like my supporters acting this way. I don't approve of anything this guy did. You remember that. Basically what he's saying is, don't blame me for, for this nut job. And we kind of understand what, what Bernie Sanders was doing because nobody wants to be known as the guy whose supporters are murdering wackos. Even in American politics, that's not a very good demographic to, to work from. That got me thinking, sometimes I wonder if God isn't tempted to hold a press conference once in a while and, and, and say something like, it's come to my attention that people who call themselves Christians have been lying and cheating, stealing, fighting with each other, sleeping around slandering each other behind closed doors. They've been hypocrites of the worst sort. They've used other people and even used my name as a tool to feed their lust for money, their lust for power, or their thirst for pleasure. And I think God might say something like, I want you to know, I, I disavow these people acting this way. I disapprove of their behavior. I wish they wouldn't even call themselves Christians because they're running the name Christian through the mud. And I don't like it. When Christians, who are sinners, act more like sinners than Christians, it, it gets noticed, doesn't it? Not only in the church, but particularly in the world. And maybe the most devastating effect of that is that the glorious, transformative, powerful gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ sort of looks like it really isn't worth anything. After all, if Jesus was so great and this gospel was so powerful, why on earth is my Christian neighbor the most annoying person on the block? Why is it that the Christian contractor does the worst job? Why is it that the Christians tip the worst down at the cafe and on and on it goes? You've heard this. This isn't new to you or me. Actually, this is so old, it goes way back to the early days of the church where we find Paul in prison, on his knees, praying for the Colossians. Now, I want to be a better prayer, and I hope all of you do too. None of us would probably say we pray enough or good enough or with enough effectiveness. So in our efforts to become better prayers, we want to take notice of the things that get prayed about in the Bible. And this is a great example, beginning in verse 9. Paul is praying, and notice that he doesn't pray that the Colossian church would have a bigger membership. He doesn't pray that they would have more black in their budgets. Uh, he doesn't pray that they would have bigger buildings, that they would have improved programs. He doesn't even pray that they'll have healthier bodies. He doesn't pray that they'll be healed from all sicknesses, have better jobs, higher salaries, happier marriages, and easier lives. You can pray for those things, and that's fine. There's grounds for that, but, but that's not what Paul prays for here. What he prays for in verse 9 is that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. That you would know what God's will is. That, that's what he's praying for. Why? Why do you pray that, Paul? Verse 10, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. That's why Paul prays that the Colossians would know God's will. And what this means here is that there's a kind of walk, a kind of lifestyle that is 
fitting for a Christian. Or to be even more precise, a, a walk, a lifestyle that is appropriate to the God that we profess, that we love, and the God that we say we are following. Walking in a manner worthy of the Lord means we behave in such a way that God is not ashamed to call us His children. It means to live out every aspect of life. Notice the word all or every there in verse 10. Every part of life, public and especially our private lives, in a way that pleases God in all respects. And no doubt, if, if you're here this morning and you profess that you are a, a believer, you would say that you want God to be pleased with you. In fact, that's not even exclusive to Christians. A large portion of non-Christians, members of other religions, Muslims would say, I want God to be pleased with how I live my life. Now, there's a key ingredient to any sort of life that pleases God, and, and that is this. It's, it's faith. Hebrews 11.6, without faith it is impossible to please Him. Faithless people don't please God. To be more precise, those without faith in the Lord Jesus can't please God because those who reject Jesus reject God. But when we please God, we, we must please God by trusting, having faith in, believing that God is who He says He is in His Word. Now what that means is that you don't get to make up your own version of God who is pleased with you however you think He is. That's how you get all these weird religions that seem to somehow end up with sexual perversion here on earth and some sort of twisted view of heaven that's nothing but sex. You, you make up your own God, you make up your own heaven, and uh, it's pretty much just what you want. It's everything that you're enamored with. So when you read through the Old Testament, sometimes you'll hear God complaining about His people's worship. God says things to the effect of, I, I wish you wouldn't sacrifice to me anymore because the stink of the smoke coming off the altar is making me sick. It's making me nauseous. The Israelite people had convinced themselves that God was really happy with their sort of half-hearted attempts to worship Him. They offered lambs just like He wanted them to. They just decided to give the blind ones and the lame ones, the, the, the junk ones, uh, because then you don't have to, you know, get, what are you going to do with a, a lame lamb, a blind lamb? You're just going to get rid of it. And God needs a lamb, so let's just give him that one. We, we do double duty. We don't have to haul the thing to the dump, and, and we make God happy at the same time. But God wasn't buying this. God isn't fooled by these sorts of shenanigans. So if we want to please God, actually, actually please Him, we, we need to approach God through faith in Christ and faith in the Bible to show us who God is. And so we, we want to keep that in mind because if we, if we forget these two things, we'll think that pleasing God means we just have to try harder than we are when, when pleasing God comes through, through faith. All right, so that's sort of the backdrop. Now, what does a worthy walk look like, verse 10? What does the manner worthy of the Lord look like? Uh, when I was here, I don't know, a year or so ago, we talked about the worthy walk from the church context in Ephesians 4. Uh, as we talked about walking in unity. Here in Colossians 1, the, the emphasis is more of a personal walk. 
A walk that is, verse 10, fully pleasing to, to God. And then Paul begins to lay out four characteristics of the worthy walk. And I'll give them to you, and we'll pay special attention to number four. But here are the four elements or characteristics of a worthy walk, beginning in verse 10. The first one is bearing fruit for every good work. God is pleased when his children perform good works out of faith. James says faith without works is dead, just as Hebrews 11.6 says that works without faith is dead. And so the, the two are very, very much inseparable. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that before we even came to Christ, before we even became Christians, God laid out for us a lifetime supply of good works. The language in Ephesians 2.10 is that Good works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And sort of like uh, my wife will occasionally, when I need to really, you know, look my best, you can only do so much with this, but my wife does pretty good, and she will lay out my clothes beforehand so that I don't look, you know, entirely hideous, like I'm going to a Halloween party or something. And so God has laid out good works for his children to walk in beforehand. God didn't save you so that you could go back to living the same way you were and doing the same things that you were and, and running after the same goals that you were. No, salvation, your salvation, came with a custom-prepared batch of good, useful, beneficial things for you to do, like having compassion on the poor, caring for the orphans and widows, things like bearing each other's burdens, which doesn't just mean feeling bad for people when they're going through a rough patch, but actually shouldering the weight of those burdens and trying to help them through, fix some of their problems if you can, making sure that other people aren't being crushed by the weight of their, of their troubles. I think all of us are aware of the tendency that Christians have to kick each other when we're down. And Part of that, I think, is because we're just Americans. The reason I'm not down is because I work really hard to keep myself standing up. And so if you're down, it's probably your own fault for being lazy. So I'll just kick you, and, and I'll kick you until you get yourself up, and then maybe we can be friends. That's kind of how we tend to think. That's not pleasing to God. That's not acting in faith in the Lord Jesus. That's not doing good works prepared beforehand. You'll notice in verse 10, particularly that what Paul is praying for is that the Colossians would bear fruit in every good work. I think we could summarize it this way. Lord, don't let their good works pass without accomplishing great things. Don't let their efforts be useless. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. If I could summarize Philippians 2, verse 14 through 16, Paul tells the church at Philippi, act like Christians so that I can face Jesus knowing that all the work I didn't, that I put into you wasn't wasted. It's really an astounding couple of verses. It's a terrible thing to work really hard on something only to have your work wasted, isn't it? I, I, I can't, or at least I won't tell you about the times that I've worked really hard uh, in construction, building a wall or a set of stairs or a cabinet, only to get it all done and realize that something is wrong and all that work and all that labor is, is in vain. I also be torn apart, kind of like a punch in the gut. But, but you know the satisfaction of working and working and working on something, and it's finally done, and it's beautiful, and, and, and even the beauty is in some sense, its own reward. 
And Paul is saying here that part of the worthy walk, the kind of walk that belongs to the, the Christian who pleases God, it's a life littered with good works, and none of those good works are done in vain. They are bearing fruit. Now, we'll never have good works that bear fruit if we don't do them. Maybe one of the reasons that the church is by and large ineffective and fruitless is because we just don't actually do the things that bear fruit, don't actually do the good works. But part of walking in a manner worthy of the Lord is bearing fruit in every good work. The second is increasing in the knowledge of God. I won't bother you with the Greek, but grammatically speaking, Paul could mean one of two things here. It's, it's an interpretive call. First, it could mean that we are increasing in the knowledge of God and that uh, our, our ever-increasing understanding of who God is that, that comes through the Word of God, study of the Word of God, and prayer, that is growing, and we are growing in knowing more of who God is. God has never been impressed by Christians who are, who are really ignorant of Him and ignorant of His Word. Willfully so. One of, one of the things that Jesus often said to the religious leaders of his day was, haven't you read? Haven't you read? Haven't you, haven't you opened your Bible? You don't know this stuff? You have access to the Word of God? You have two eyeballs and, and somebody taught you how to read and there's the words? And, and, and you mean I, God gave you this book and you didn't read it? I, I get it. Knowledge puffs up. There's kind of biblical knowledge. It's just a random collection of facts that really doesn't do anything except make you feel, you know, makes me feel better than you if I can smoke you a Bible trivia or something. But, but if knowledge puffs up, it doesn't actually follow that ignorance makes you a wonderful Christian because it doesn't. Ignorance is not a virtue. At best, ignorance is an excuse. But with the number of ways you can get your Bible into your head in this day and age, I think we'd all have a rather difficult time explaining to the Lord Jesus why we didn't have the time or material to know him better through his word. On my phone here in my pocket, within 30 seconds, I have access to the Bible in hundreds of languages, and if I don't have time to stop and actually read it, I push a button and somebody reads it for me. Okay? I, you kind of run out of excuses fast. And if I'm running a machine, I have you know, 3M, the good people at 3M made these headphones that pipes it in and blocks out everything else. There's no excuse for not continually increasing in the knowledge of God. And that's what Paul is praying for. That's part of the worthy walk, increasing in the knowledge of God. But the, the other thing that this phrase could mean is that we're increasing by the knowledge of God. That is growing, increasing by knowing God. There's a, really a direct link between our spiritual life, our spiritual strength, and our knowledge of God. How do, we, how do we grow as Christians? We grow in the knowledge of God. When Paul was sitting in prison the final time, his death was imminent. And in his last letter to Timothy, he said, he said, Timothy, come and visit me, and I need some things. I need two things. I need a coat, because it's really cold. And so bring me a coat and bring me the parchments. Bring me some books. I need to read. I need to know God more. I need to continually be increasing, growing by the knowledge of God. That's, that's part of the, the worthy walk, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, growing in Christ through knowing 
God's word. The third element of the worthy walk is being strengthened with all power. You see this in verse 11. This is a fun one because we all like the idea of being strong. And, and Paul prays not just that we'd have our own strength beefed up, but look what he says. Being strengthened according to his glorious might. Who's the his? That's, that's God. So what Paul's praying is that we would be strengthened with power in accordance with God's power, which is really big. So in some sense, our strength is an imitation of God's own strength. How awesome is that? What would you do if you could wield the power of God? Well, I'll tell you what I'd do. I'd make all my problems go away. I'd pay off my debts, fix my body. Restore the broken relationships. I'd bring my own version of heaven down to earth, which probably at the end of the day would make a bigger mess than we started with. But look at why Paul says we need to be strengthened. Why, why do we need God's strength? To be strengthened with power according to God's might. Verse 11, for, for all endurance and patience with joy. What on earth is that about? Well, here's, here's what he means. Colossians, you're about to suffer. Things are going to get really hard, and they're going to get hard maybe for a long time. You need endurance. You need, you need patience. You need to patiently endure with, with joy, and to do that literally takes the power of God in you. I don't know about you, but I don't suffer well. I complain, I gripe, I cry, I whine. I milk every bit of pain for every bit of sympathy I can possibly get. My wife is weary of it after 18 years of it. Paul is writing from prison. He's writing to Christians who, in historically speaking, in 35 years or less, are going to suffer under terrible persecution from the Roman government. Paul is going to be beheaded by Nero, and some of these Colossian Christians perhaps are going to be marched into an arena and slaughtered by gladiators or eaten by lions. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean all your problems go away. I hope you know that by now. It doesn't mean that life automatically gets easy. What it does mean is that you have access to the very power of God to help you endure hard times patiently and with, with joy. So that's the first three marks. So here's the fourth one that we're going to really key in on. And I know I, I'm at least halfway done, so don't worry. This, I know it's an introduction, but there's, there's, we'll keep going. Here's the fourth characteristic. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. I don't know, maybe this strikes you odd. It struck me as odd as I was working through this. Gratitude is one of the marks of a worthy walk. Of all the things Paul could have said, if you're going to pick just four marks of a worthy walk here, why is one gratitude? When we're thankful, when we're thankful we recognize that somebody has benefited in benefited us in some way. When we refuse to give thanks, it's the same as saying, you are not helping me. Paul in Romans 1 connects the wicked with those who refuse to give thanks. The wicked do not acknowledge God, and so they don't give God thanks, because at the end of the day, they don't believe God's done anything for them. 
giving thanks is really closely related to one of the most important character traits of a Christian, and that's humility. The, the one who is not thankful is, is always going to be proud. The ungrateful person doesn't think he needs anything from anyone. Why should he give thanks? The arrogant person begrudges any sort of gift. They, they hate gifts because, because receiving gifts seems to indicate they could be helped by other people. The proud man is entirely self-sufficient. He doesn't need that. It takes humility to be thankful. Gratitude is an admission that I am who I am, in part, at least because of the input of other people. I'm not a self-made man. So giving thanks to our Heavenly Father is part of walking worthy of Him. It's a recognition that God has done great things for us. And it's an act of faith because, in large part, what Paul's going to talk about, us giving thanks for... Are, are things that we don't yet see and feel and, and taste. We're going to see things that God did, like rescued us from the domain of darkness and give us forgiveness of sins and, and reconcile us in his fleshly body and, and so forth. But at the end of the day, it's really hard to put your finger on those things, right? In other words... If, if you were to go into a doctor and say, Doctor, can you please tell me if I'm a Christian? He'd, he'd say, well, we can run you through the MRI. We can give you a CAT scan. We can draw some blood and run it down to the lab. And what's he going to say? It's, it's inconclusive, okay? You, you could talk to scientists and so forth and say, please tell me if I'm a Christian. Have I been regenerated? Have I been redeemed? Have my sins been forgiven? You can't really put a finger on that, can you? So if you're going to give thanks for those things, you're giving thanks for an invisible reality that you can't put a finger on exactly. You can't feel it. You can't quantify it scientifically. So we give thanks in faith that God has done these things, even though we, we might not feel them necessarily. So what do we give thanks for? Well, we give thanks because the Father, verse 12, has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. When you, when you hear the word inheritance, probably what you, you, you probably think of what I think of. Uh, it, it means somebody dies and you take over part or all of their stuff, right? Uh, so my dad has a wonderful library, a lot of books. He's made it his life's ambition to collect good books. He's a pastor and he's got a great library. And when he dies, I get it, okay? My brothers and sister, they can fight over all the other stuff. The books, everybody knows, are mine. I just don't get them until he dies, there is a law, by the way, in the United States that says if you kill the person that you're going to inherit from, you don't get to, you forfeit the inheritance. We'll talk about that later. But that's what keeps me from killing my dad to get his books because American law says kill him, don't get the books. So I just got to wait. And I'll, I love my dad. Just relax. <laughs> but in our minds, it's hard to think of the idea of inheritance without thinking of death. But the word, the word here, as Paul uses it, doesn't just mean that you get what you get when someone dies, because God isn't going to die. What it means here is that you're taking possession of something that's been allotted for you. For instance, Jesus says in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself. Peter says in 1 Peter 1 that God caused us to be born again, quote, to obtain an inheritance 
that is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. It's an inheritance with your name on it. You, get to be, you ever get to be one of the cool people that walk into you know, a wedding or some sort of special event and the reserved sign is actually for you? You, know, you don't have to sit eight rows back. You actually sit, it's reserved and you're part of the family. You get in that spot. That's, that's what God has for us in heaven, for his children, reserved, and it's got your name on it. That's part of your allotment, your inheritance. But there's a qualification required to actually take possession of your inheritance. Listen to what Paul says to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Don't you know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you know that unrighteous people will not inherit God's kingdom? And that's a major problem because all of us are unrighteous. We were born that way. Romans 3, there's none righteous, no, not one. Listen to what John says about heaven in Revelation 21. God is speaking and says, He who overcomes will inherit these things. I'll be his God and he'll be my son. That's great. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part, their inheritance will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. In the daytime, for there will be no night in heaven, heaven's gates will never be closed, closed, and they'll bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Again, Revelation 22, as the Bible is closing, the Bible says this, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons, the murderers and the idolaters, everyone who loves and practices lying. They don't get to go in. They don't get the inheritance. They are disqualified. So there's certain qualifications that have to be met in order to lay claim to the inheritance in heaven. And the gospel is the good news that God actually did something to qualify us because we can't qualify ourselves. We're hopelessly disqualified from birth and we continually disqualify ourselves every day of our life. So God qualifies us to share in the inheritance. How does he do that? Let me give you five. I'll race through these as fast as I can. The first thing he does is he rescues us. Verse 13, he rescued us from the domain of darkness. You ever see those, you remember seeing those bobbing rafts of Cubans trying to, you know, get away from Castro, get down to Florida, get to Miami? Heard about the North Koreans, you know, risking being shot, trying to get out from that oppressive regime. I grew up listening to stories of the East Germans trying to sneak out of Berlin to the, to the good side. It's a terrible thing to live as a captive in a nation ruled by terror, isn't it? And you can't get out. But it's a glorious thing to be freed from it. And we were born citizens of the domain of darkness. He rescued us from the domain or the kingdom of, of darkness. We were slaves of sin, slaves of the devil, sons of disobedience. We couldn't escape from this domain because there's no holes in that border and the walls are so high we can never climb out of it. The only way out of the domain of darkness is if somebody with an infinitely long hand reaches in and pulls us out of there, right? 
You can't escape on your own, and that's what God did. Everyone who comes to him to be rescued, nobody is so entrenched in the kingdom of darkness that God's hand can't reach them. It's a good thing. It's a good thing for me. It's a good thing for you. Secondly, God not only rescues us, he relocates us. This is verse 13. Transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. The word transferred, relocated. Been taken out of one kingdom and put into another. Because we're not refugees. You've heard about the refugees, right? People that leave, their, their country is torn apart. They can't live there anymore. And so they just start walking and but they don't have a place to go. They don't have another country. They're just sort of dependent on the good graces of somebody else to try to take them in. God doesn't just set us loose from the kingdom of darkness and say, please find yourself a home somewhere. I set you free, now find your own way. No, no, he transfers us to the kingdom of his beloved son. He makes us citizens in good standing of the kingdom of heaven. And then verse 14, he redeems us. This is how God qualifies us to take part of the inheritance. He, he rescues us from the domain of darkness. He, you can't take ownership in the kingdom of heaven if you're a citizen of the kingdom of darkness. And he redeems us, verse 14. Not only were we citizens of the domain of darkness, we're citizens, frankly, in good standing. We belong there. We fit in in the kingdom of darkness. All, all those reasons that people are disqualified from the inheritance, they're liars, immoral, unclean, idolaters, etc. That's you and that's me. That's who we were. We, were, we, we made ourselves a comfortable living in that kingdom. Paul says in Ephesians 2.3, Among them too we all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind. We're by nature children of wrath. That's, that's, we indulge our flesh, indulge our desires. We do that daily, even, even now. We don't have a, any ability to put an end to our own wickedness. But before Christ, we don't want to. <laughs> Why would we? It's a lot of fun. In Christ, there is redemption, which is defined here in Colossians 2.14 as the forgiveness of sins. Now, the, the best way I can help you understand forgiveness is the related definition in Greek. The, the Greek word ephiemi means forgive, but it also means divorce. You say, isn't like divorce the lack of forgiveness, right? People wouldn't get divorced if they could forgive. Well, here's the connection. Forgiveness and divorce both mean a letting go or a releasing or a separation. It's tearing two things that are together completely apart from each other. It's taking one and making them into two. In regards to forgiveness or setting one free from sin, it means to separate you from your sin so you're not married to it anymore. Isn't that a great thing? You don't own your sins anymore. God in Christ has redeemed you. He's separated you from your sin. Because sinful people cannot inherit the kingdom. Now, verse 15 through 20 are the description of the king. I can't go through this with you. I'd love to. I can't even get through the last two R's, but I'm going to try. Verse 21, fourth R, way God qualifies us. He reconciles us. Although you were formerly alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. And the idea here is taking two parties who are fighting with each other and making them friendly again. 
Our natural state is hostility toward God. We're not happy with God, what God has given us. We're not happy with what He hasn't given to us. We're not happy that He demands a lot of stuff from us, ultimate allegiance. We're not happy that God wants our worship. God wants our obedience. We're not happy that God doesn't like the things that we like. We're not happy that God isn't happy with our feeble, half-hearted attempts to please Him. So we're just kind of mad at God. That's life before Christ. Or to use Paul's terms simply in verse 21, we were alienated and hostile doing evil deeds. Or to use the example before, we just kind of wanted God dead. And if you try to kill the person you're inheriting from, you don't get the inheritance. Okay, covered that ground. All believers, unbelievers are at odds with God, at war with God. God in Christ reconciles us. Fifth R, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave the fifth R off. We've, we've covered that other times. Let me just button this all up. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And part of walking in a manner worthy of the Lord is giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You have in Christ a tremendous inheritance waiting for you. We believe that by faith. We haven't seen it. We've read about it here. And we believe it. We believe the word of God. We believe the witness of the Holy Spirit in us. We are not qualified to take that. But God, because he loves us, sent the Lord Jesus to qualify us. You don't qualify yourself. I have to remember this. You have to remember this. I have to remember this when I get really irritated at other people. Say, oh, there's no way you're qualified for the inheritance of the saints in light. Well, I'm not either, am I? But I am through Christ, and you are through Christ. And we need to learn to give thanks, to be grateful to the Father who has qualified us, who are so utterly disqualified from any sort of inheritance. He has created a kingdom for us that will blow our minds. And we must walk worthy of the Lord who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So pray for each other as Paul prayed for the Colossians and as no doubt the Lord Jesus prays for you. That you would be filled with the knowledge of the will of God in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So you, Emmanuel Baptist and, and me and the folks at Kwamba, would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And Father, may you be pleased with your saints this morning. May you be pleased with your children. May May you give us the strength and the grace to walk worthy of the Lord, worthy of your name, to be fitting representatives of the glorious transformative gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you for qualifying us to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. What great grace is ours that you would reach down, rescue us from the domain of darkness, transfer us into the kingdom of your beloved Son, not because of how wonderful we are, not because we are worth so much, but because you have chosen to love us, and you have loved us well, and you have qualified us 
so that we are actually fitting to share in the inheritance of the saints. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand as we sing our last song? <laughs>